Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, a delicious encore edition. When authors and directors invite audiences into an imagined world, they know that food can't be left off the table. You really going to town with that turkey there? Oh, yeah. I got a big appetite. Oh, Jerry, you got no mustard. It's on the door. What, this yellow stuff? (laughs) No, I said mustard, Jerry. Dijon. Hey, hey, wait, wait, wait. What, are you going to leave it there? It's like half a pound of turkey. Oh, no, I can't eat that. You can't eat a sandwich without Dijon. Should we have some lemon cakes? Lemon cake's my favorite. So we've been told. Are you going to bring the food, or do you mean to starve us to death? Bertie bought every flavor beans. They mean every flavor. There's chocolate and peppermint, and there's also spinach, liver, and tripe. Look, I'm sure it's delicious. I just don't understand why we can't see Yoda now. Patience! With a Jedi, it's time to eat as well. Mm? (laughs) Eat! Eat! Good food! Good! And fans are feasting on a yummy genre, pop culture cookbooks, based on shows like the ones we just heard. Seinfeld, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, and Star Wars. Recipes and imaginary narratives combine to bring cuisines from fictional universes to real life. Everything from linguine with white clam sauce in The Sopranos Family Cookbook to crunchy spider surprise in World of Warcraft, the official cookbook. A sprinkling of books from this genre has been around for decades, but in the past few years, demand from fandoms has grown, and publishers are all too willing to satiate their hunger. When this show aired last summer, we were excited to bring an hour chock-full of fictional-turned-real recipes and the masterminds behind them. First up, revisiting the culinary delights of Black Panther's Wakanda, just in time for the movie sequel, Wakanda Forever. Later in the show, fantasy fiends and cookbook lovers unite. We continue digging into the world of pop culture cooking, a genre that brings fictional savories and sweets to real-world tables. It was really fun hearing that interview again and really seeing how far we've come and, uh, you know, how many of those little boxes I've been lucky enough to tick uh, throughout the last 10 years, which was a whirlwind adventure. So it's pretty terrific. We revisit an interview 10 years ago with the co-author of the official Game of Thrones cookbook. Afterward, Chelsea Monroe Castle updates us about the career she's whipped up ever since. But first, joining me, 
Nyanika Banda, Malawian-American chef, writer, entrepreneur, and author of the newly released Marvel's Black Panther, the official Wakanda cookbook. Nanika is located in Amherst, Massachusetts. Welcome to Under the Radar. Thank you for having me. I'm so delighted to have you. I couldn't wait to get this book, and it's gorgeous. So the first thing that people should know about it is it looks just like a regular cookbook, and it has all the beauty of the photographs and the uh, recipes laid out in such an enticing way. So even if you're not into Black Panther and Wakanda, certainly it's a recipe book you'd want to have anyway, (laughs) I would suggest. (laughs) But let's talk a little bit about you. So how do you, a chef, a real chef, uh, end up writing the Marvel Black Panther official Wakanda cookbook? Well, yeah, the the story behind it, I feel, is slightly serendipitous because um, as a 25-year veteran of the restaurant industry and working full-time as a chef, you know, the COVID pandemic really shut us all down. And so I really had to reevaluate my passion for food and how I can, you know, continue to still make a living. So, Since I have a degree in writing, I decided that food writing would be the next best pivot. And so I was doing that for about a year. And then pretty much on the one year anniversary of the last time I worked in a restaurant, um, I was in a online uh, group for female food writers. And there was a post from the publisher saying that they were looking for a chef who had backgrounds in African foodways, who had experience with recipe testing, and recipe development. And I have a background in all of those things and being very much self-employed, I reached out to them and said, you know, um, I I should be the one to write your book. And at the time I didn't actually know that it was going to be for Wakanda. I just knew that it was a project on African foodways and um, it's just a passion of mine as a scholar. So when I found out it was for Wakanda, I got even more excited (laughs) and, did an interview, but really assumed that they would probably choose anyone else just because I have extreme imposter syndrome. So to my (laughs) surprise, I received um, a message the next day saying that they had chosen me to be the the curator of the the culinary um, candor for Wakanda. Well, now here's what's interesting is you're not a comic book person. So we assume you knew Black Panther and what that was all about. Did you even see the movie? Had you seen the movie at that point? I had seen the movie and definitely I understood the significance of the Black Panther movie in terms of, you know, for us as a society right now, in terms of cultural relevance. So yes, I wasn't a huge comic book reader of the series, but I knew that this project would be an opportunity to celebrate Black excellence. And so that's what really made me excited. Now, here's the thing that I think probably people won't get about these pop culture cookbooks is that there is deep diving into not only the history of the characters and that storyline, but also about the kinds of foods, because it really has to be authentic, interestingly enough, in a fictional way. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a fictional situation, but the recipes have to be authentic. So what was your process to begin to try to figure out what are they eating in Wakanda? Yeah, it was it was tricky because if you watch the movie, there's not a lot of mention about food. And so then I turned to the comic books and just started reading those. And again, there was minimal mention of food. So the next step was 
going online and that's when I discovered the Marvel fandom page and realized that the fans have really helped to contribute to the history of Wakanda. And so there's information that goes back decades and decades in terms of the history of this fictional nation of Wakanda. So I was able to learn a lot more about different characters that aren't necessarily mentioned in the movie, but do contribute to King T'Challa and Princess Shuri in present day. So, you know, once you kind of understood the history of Wakanda, it was a little bit easier for me to start creating storylines. I would say the greatest challenge is that Wakanda, not only is it a fictional nation, but part of the Wakandan lore is that it was closed off from the rest of the world. So traditionally, African foods, you can see very clearly the influence of colonialism. And so how do you, you know, still honor those African foods while explaining why it might have some of that Western influence in there? So let me just unpack that a little bit, Nanika. When you say you can usually see in African foods the influence of colonization, give me an example, you know, outside of Wakanda, per se. Well, for instance, something like samosas. When I was in Malawi, samosas were on every menu. And while this isn't necessarily an example of colonization, it's an example of how the influence of, for instance, the Indian spice trade. Mm. And Wakanda exists... Uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, where my family is from, is also in that southeast part of Africa. And so if you look at where the Indian spice trade went, it went directly along the eastern border of Africa. So people might associate samosa with Pakistan or India, but it actually is also a very African food. Hmm, Okay. Um, Now, in the fandom sites that you spent a lot of time reading, did they mention food or imagine food or you just were uh, able to get just a better sense of, you know, the population of Wakanda, if you will, and the characters and the and the situation, which would then allow you to, you know, jump off from the environment as described by fans? Yeah, there definitely was not a lot of mention of food in the fandom, but it was great to learn about all of these other peripheral characters And, um, you know, another example for the book that I used was I learned that at certain points, Captain America and some of the other Avengers through the storyline of the Black Panther had gone to Wakanda. So that kind of gave me a door to say, well, you know, if Captain America was in Wakanda, maybe Captain America influenced some of the food that they were eating there at that time. Yes, and if people remember one of the one of the end credits of, um, and I don't remember which which Avengers movie it was, but uh, Shuri, who is Black Panther's sister, comes out, and there is Captain America or his buddy, and she says, "Hello, colonizer," and then you know we're left to, mm-hmm. "Oh, what's that going to mean?" But anyway, so <laughs> so so obviously, you know, they were uh, visiting uh, Wakanda at that point. It's interesting because in the fandom, they, there is a lot of. Um, actual present day history involved there. So they actually do talk about, um, you know, World War II and what was happening in the world. And it actually has, they somehow incorporated Wakanda into that. So that actually is a point in time when the Avengers do come to Wakanda. You know, Wakandans also looked to the Avengers for help in fighting off other um, folks that were trying to come in and take over. If you're just tuning in, this is an encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and joining me was Nyanika Banda. 
chef and author of Marvel's Black Panther, the official Wakanda cookbook. So a couple things to, uh, to know. We've already said uh, Wakanda was cut off deliberately. They cut itself off because, as people know the story, I hope this I'm not spoiling it for anybody, um, they were technologically advanced, but they didn't want the rest of the world to know, so they just kept it themselves. Now we know that there's Western influences, either from other Avengers or other ways, and you have a sense of some of the trading practices that came along in Africa in general that might have come that way uh, in terms of the influence in Wakandan food. But here's something else. In the movie, there is one reference to food. It's a comic piece. We're going to play the clip for you. Um, So we have a sense that Wakandans were also, many of them, vegetarians. Here's a clip from Marvel's 2018 film Black Panther featuring actor Winston Duke as M'Baku. You cannot talk. One more word, and I will feed you to my children. I'm kidding, we are vegetarians. (laughs) Yeah, that was a great part. (laughs) I love that scene. And he, and he timed it beautifully. All right. So so you did a couple of things. You did your research. You went to fandom. You figured out all these other ways in which there, the food could have been influenced, fictional food of Wakanda. But you also, using your writing skills, created a character who would have been in place to create the dishes for the royal family. And that's uh, Indy Chikonda, executive chef of the Royal Palace of Wakanda. So tell me about creating Indy and then how she developed specific recipes and give me some examples. Well, creating that character was really essential for me so that I had some sort of grounding and stepping off point for creating the recipes. Um, Because again, especially working directly with Marvel, we didn't want it to just be a book with a bunch of African recipes in there. You know, we wanted it to make sense and we wanted it to flow with what Wakanda is. So being a writer and having studied writing, one of the foundations that we're always told is, you know, write what you know. So I was, I was a little bit stressed and overwhelmed only because I do care so much about the fans and I wanted to make sure that whatever I was writing stayed true to that. So for me, as a lifelong chef, that was the character that I created so that I could feel more tied to the storyline. And, you know, it worked out really well because I was able, again, to use that character of the chef and say when the chef was traveling with King T'Challa and went to other parts of the world, they were influenced again by different types of foods. Um, And so for me, it's been really great actually creating all these different characters. And when, when I was reading the Black Panther comic series, I noticed, and it's true in the movie as well, that there are a lot of really strong female characters. And um, as a female entrepreneur and someone who's, you know, had to kind of break through a lot of glass ceilings, I saw this also as an opportunity to introduce even more female strong characters. So the chef of the Royal Palace that was training the narrator of the cookbook is a strong woman. I've uh, interchanged them throughout the the book so that there's um, people that worked in the market. Uh, There's the Dora Milaje who are the female warriors. So they have a lot of influence in this book. So yeah, once I was able to get that voice, things came slightly more easier to me. All right, let's talk about some of the recipes. I know it's hard, but 
Is there a favorite that you have? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I'm going to I'm going to steal one line from uh, Chef uh, Jeffrey Zakarian that I saw on TV recently because he said it's kind of like having children and people ask like how do you choose your favorite child? So, just to preface that, um, but there's a recipe that's really dear to my heart which is the braised kale and tomatoes. Um, that is a family recipe of mine that was passed down from my late aunt. Um, she was the family chef and it was really important for her for me to understand my Malawian identity and heritage since growing up here in the United States. And so she and I would cook together and we actually had discussed writing a cookbook that celebrated our heritage. And she actually passed away about six months before I got this book deal but the last meal we made together was the braised kale and tomatoes mm -hmm. and then um through her passing our family ended up returning to Malawi and returning to the village where she and my father and aunts grew up so um you know I had that kind of spirit that angel looking over me I think when this book deal came upon me and so I really wanted to make sure that I paid homage to those women in my life who um were very exemplary and also culinarily very skilled. Mm. If you're just tuning in, this is an encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I was joined by Chef Nayanika Banda, author of Marvel's Black Panther, the official Wakanda cookbook. We're talking about the delicious world of pop culture cooking. Well, I tried two of the dishes. I'm going to circle back to you for another one of your favorites, but I just wanted to let... Uh, my listeners know I tried to, the blackened tilapia. Tilapia is very important, uh, I know, in Malawi in general. And there's lakes in in Wakanda, so there's, you know, fish. And so you paid particular uh, attention to that. Delicious. The, the mix, the spice mix for the fish was yummy. And I had to try the Harissa spice spice mix for popcorn, which mm. I just love, 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 love. I messed it up oh, because good. I didn't read it correctly, but it still came out good. <laughs> so next time I'm going to do it right. It, is, it can only be better. Um, I mixed the uh, nutritional yeast in with the whole, all the other spices. I was supposed to keep it separate. But otherwise, um, it was delicious. I really enjoyed both of them. And I can see that there are other recipes that I would enjoy. So that's what I meant when I'm um, speaking to now the cooks and people who like to to experiment with uh, dishes that there's a lot to enjoy um, in the book. You picked, uh, you designed a recipe specifically specifically for the Dora Malaji. Those are the the fierce security patrol for the royal family. Talk about that dish. Are you referring to the Karen Energy Bars? Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. So definitely through reading the books, I saw that they do a lot of training, um, a lot of traveling. And so it seemed to me that, you know, they don't necessarily have all the means to be making food on the go all the time. So creating this carob energy balls for me seemed like, you know, something that you would keep in your sack and to have, you know, to keep the energy going while you're out uh, protecting Wakanda. And give me another dish that you enjoyed that. I mean, that you I know you enjoyed all of them, but one of your other favorites. <laughs> I, I'll i definitely tell you that when I was recipe testing the mango ginger glazed Roadrunner chicken wings. Oh, okay. There was no, no, no leftovers for anyone else to try. 
<laughs> so you tested them well. <laughs> yeah. So I would say, you know, especially because yes, Wakanda, there's it's very heavily uh, vegetable based. Um, but again, like when I was in Malawi, um, the term roadrunner is used uh, as we would say, like for a free range. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you see that on the menu, you know that they're just kind of free roaming chickens. And the um, mango ginger glaze is, is, a, is a recipe that I've had in my repertoire. I've never used it with um, chicken before. Mm. So the recipe, you know, I, I also goes into some more kind of classical techniques. Like you do brine the wings before you fry them, uh, which to me, just as a chef, I'm just let, let everyone know that brining your proteins really enhances your dishes. <laughs> um, and yeah, so far I've had friends make those and come back to me and, and rave about it. So they're good for parties or just if you want a snack on a pound of chicken wings on your own. <laughs> <laughs> they look good. I just haven't gotten to them yet. Um, I think it's important to say about Wakanda itself, the fictional empire, um, and certainly what people saw in the movie and what you've created also in the book is just so that people understand. Different African countries, it's not Africa's not one big country, have specific cuisines attached to the country. There may be some overlap, but there's not necessarily you go to Malawi and get the same thing you're going to get in Nigeria and vice versa. Uh, But the movie was structured, and this is what Ryan Coogler said, he was very careful about trying to establish a kind of authentic pan-Africanism, if you will. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff in the movie that's actually uh, authentic to different (laughs) countries in Africa. Um, Mm -hmm. And it came across, you know, just a sort of pan-Africanism. And I thought that's what you were achieving in the cookbook as well. That was a huge part of my mission. You know, um, again, when I was in Africa, I was talking to someone that was from North North Africa. And this was before even I knew I was going to write the book for Wakanda, but we were just talking about Black Panther and they expressed, um, you know, they said, Wakanda is in the heart of all of us. And I really wanted to stay true to that as a child of the African diaspora and as a scholar of the African diaspora, because our food has really spread all across the world. And so, um, yeah, you can see foods that might be identified as Caribbean or maybe from North Africa, like Northeast Africa, um, or perhaps even West Africa. So for me, I was always considering how can I represent those of us that are descendants of the African diaspora, yet still keep it true to Wakanda. Mm. So let's talk about the whole fun of this. This is our summer fun series. Um, (laughs) How fun was it to, to, you know, let your chef flag fly, as it were, and do your thing on something that is imagined. So you can kind of, you, you, you've said you wanted to have integrity in dishes and the storytelling, but within that, you could go any direction. Yeah, it was fun creating it. I have to say it's more fun seeing people respond to the recipes, only because I was, I was so concerned about making sure that I paid correct homage to this story and to the candor. So I'm not going to lie, I was still pretty worried about how it would be received. But, you know, now that it's out there in the world, I see that folks really see a part of themselves 
in these recipes. And to be honest, I had to really scale it down. They wanted me to do 70 recipes. I probably had 140 <laughs> ideas. Wow. Um, so yeah, there's a whole other cookbook that we can, you know, go write about as well. So yeah, it was really fun, especially because I am really passionate about just exposing the world to the culinary influences that Africans have had over centuries. And um, so that is just what gave me a lot of joy. What What have you heard that's uh, so interesting thus far? It's just coming out, really. I mean, it's been out a little bit, but, but you know, it'll gain more traction as the movie comes out. And it's scheduled mm-hmm. to come out, I think, November. So we know mm-hmm. that that's what happens. And then the great thing about these cookbooks is that they have long life after the movies are out. You People yeah. go back to them afterwards for more. So what have mm-hmm. you heard that just delights you from, from folks who are thrilled to have the book? Um, well, one thing has been I've seen, I've received a lot of photos of families cooking together. Oh. So incorporating, you know, younger people and bringing them into the kitchen. And that also, you know, in the book, there are recipes and they're labeled out that are either easy, medium, or difficult. And so, you know, to have it be not just a coffee table book, but something that really brings people together and that they're trying out new um, spices, perhaps, or different ingredients. That's been really exciting to see. I also was reached out to by someone who has a podcast. Um, Her name is The Flaky Foodie. (laughs) And she let me know that she has just created a heritage cookbook club. Wow. And so the Black the Wakanda cookbook is their first book for the club. So they're cooking their way through the book right now. And um, that's just really exciting. For me. Oh, my goodness. Well, what's up for you next, Chef Nanika? Um, yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> well, I'm really happy to announce that I was offered a job on Martha's Vineyard. So I'm going to be catering out there for the summer. It's been two years since I've been able to do any sort of cooking for the public. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, And then I'm also currently uh, scheduling a book tour for fall, which I've pretty much set up all the dates. And I'm about to be putting that information live on the internet in the next few days here. So yeah, we're going to summer on the vineyard and and celebrate Black excellence there. And then I'm going to be hitting the road and, you know, bringing the Wakanda cookbook across the country. Well, this is some kind of exciting. You did a wonderful job. um, And I know the Marvel people must be thrilled with you. um, And I hope maybe you get to do another one of these kind of pop culture cookbooks because clearly you're you're born to do it. You know how to do the the creating the characters and uh, making the recipes and doing the research and all of that. Um, I just love it. And it's beautiful to look at. So thank you so much for... Um, just making it happen. Uh, it, was, it, it truly is. Um, I mean, it, for me, it was a gift to my community and for the culture. And it, I, I actually feel really honored that I was the one who got to uh, create the culinary landscape for Wakanda. And as you know, Wakanda forever. Wakanda forever. <laughs> now we're, we're, we're going with Wakandan food forever as well. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me again. This was great to talk to you. Nayanika Banda is a Malawian-American chef, writer, entrepreneur, and author of Marvel's Black Panther, the official Wakanda cookbook. 
Coming up, we're re-airing a 10-year-old interview with fantasy food blogger Chelsea Monroe Castle about creating recipes inspired by the book and HBO series Game of Thrones, a hobby that led to a book with an intro by Game of Thrones author George R.R. R. Martin himself. We're listening back to our original conversation and then reconnecting with the co-author to hear how she's turned her fantasy fandom into a full-time career. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is an encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. We're continuing this full hour of last summer's summer fun series with a tasty story about pop culture cookbooks. Game of Thrones fans and adventurous cooks, this one's for you. Millions of you made HBO's Game of Thrones a runaway hit, the eight-season series based on the work of author George R.R. R. Martin. Alston-based fans Chelsea Monroe Castle and Sarah Ann Lehrer co-created a recipe blog linked to Martin's imagined medieval world of flying dragons and red weddings. The co-authors joined me back then to talk about it, and last summer, we caught up with one to get an update. But first, listen back to our original interview, which aired on my former radio program, The Callie Crossley Show. Welcome back to The Callie Crossley Show. We're talking about food and cooking today. Joining me to talk about dining for the dark ages are Chelsea Monroe Castle and Sarah Ann Larry. They are the authors of the new Lehrer. I get that right, Sarah Ann Lehrer. They are the authors of the new cookbook, A Feast of Ice and Fire, the official Game of Thrones companion cookbook. Chelsea and Sarah Ann, welcome. Hi, thanks for having us. Uh, every time I mention this cookbook to people I just really didn't even think knew what was going on, they were so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the uh, power of Game of Thrones, and, and what you're doing is so uh, wonderful uh, for those fans. Let me just tell people who don't know about it that it's a cable television series on HBO. Uh, it follows multiple storylines of a Song of Ice and Fire series, and the author was George R. R. Martin. It's set in the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros. Westeros, okay. And uh, it chronicles the violent dynastic struggles among the kingdom's noble families for control of the Iron Throne. Okay, so now we know what the series is about, and what you did was write the cookbook looking at the foods that uh, author Martin put in his books and now are a part of the cable series. You got to say, uh, were you just sitting around? Were you just big fans of uh, Game of Thrones and decided, hey, let's let's write up the recipes? That's actually exactly what happened. <laughs> uh, we were trying to decide what to have for dinner one night, and uh, I don't remember what we actually decided on for dinner, but we decided that we had to have lemon cakes for dessert, so... Uh, we looked around and couldn't really find anything that seemed to fit, but uh, tried out a few recipes and really had a lot of fun researching and 
trying new things in quest of the ultimate lemon cake. Uh, and the lemon cakes are tied to a character, so I'm going to let you talk about that. <laughs> they are. They're tied to Sansa Stark, and throughout George's books, he uses food as a literary device to build his characters and the settings, and the sweetness of the lemon cake really uh, describes Sansa very well up until a certain point, and after that point where she kind of loses her innocence and everything goes down the drain for her, really. Uh, we don't really see her eat any lemon cakes anymore. Yeah, I hear that uh, it, it speaks to her naivete. She's a little bit naive early on. She is, yes. Uh, we should mention that this uh, series is a little bit violent and, uh, you know, got a lot of swords going on and people dying right and left. So uh, that's about the moment, the last moment of her innocence, as you said. Uh, now, so you go from making the lemon cakes, writing this, then putting together a, a fabulous blog that became so popular. Tell us about that. Sure. Uh, our blog is inatthecrossroads.com, and uh, it's just sort of snowballed out of control, as we like to say. We never really expected it to be this big. We never expected to get a cookbook deal out of it. Uh, we really were just doing it because we're big fans, and we really enjoy the books, and the descriptions of food were too mouthwatering to not try to make. Um, and we've gotten great fan feedback. Um We've developed our own mini fan fandom, I guess, uh, <laughs> of fictional food. And so it's really, it's great. All right. It's not quite as easy as just whipping up any old cookbook uh, because there's some research involved and some other stuff and some testing. I want to make it clear to everybody, you just didn't make up some recipes. These are tested in your Alston kitchen. Not only are they tested, but most of them are based off of age-old recipes from the Middle Ages or... Elizabethan England or Victorian England or ancient Rome. And so those have obviously been cooked since ancient Rome <laughs> up until now. Uh, most of the dishes we have, we have two recipes. One is for well-suited for the modern palate, so it's something that we developed on our own. And the other one is a historical recipe that we've tweaked a little bit to make it possible to cook in a modern kitchen, kind of put in the measurements and the temperatures that are not they're pretty absent in historical recipes. Um, that's what makes the book so beautiful. I mean, you have some great pictures in here, but I was drawn to the modern versus the medieval. What's the difference between the recipes? For a number of them, they're almost completely different dishes. Uh, the medieval palate was so different from what we expect in terms of taste profile that it you could serve them and nobody would know that they're the same thing. So, for example, it's just, I, you know, I just keep thinking about a big old leg of meat or something. That's what comes to mind when I think medieval. <laughs> Right? Right. But <laughs> for those particular dishes, those are pretty much cooked the same way now as they were back then. Yeah, okay. So not the greatest example, but if you take the pork pie, mm -hmm. which is a pretty sizable hunk of meat in a pie, um, the medieval pork pie is a lot sweeter. It uses spices that are like nutmeg and cinnamon and currants. So to our to our palate, it's it's more of like an appetizer or dessert kind of taste than the modern one in which we have cheese and barbecue sauce and apples. So that it really does fit the modern thing. Here's a, here's what I love about the book, uh, and fans will too, that you do the cuisine by the region because there are these seven families and they're moving all around, uh, that you have really matched the recipes to even some of the, not only the characters, but the area that the characters come from. You want to speak yeah, to that? That, uh, <laughs> that was something that was really important to us because that's how we organized the blog. And we felt that 
it would really be neat to make the cookbook sort of like a culinary tour of Westeros. And so if you want to eat something from, uh, you know, King's Landing, you can just flip to the appropriate color in the cookbook uh, on the edge of the page and pick either a dessert or an appetizer, soup, you know, what have you. Um, and I think that it's also really great, as you said, to uh, be able to read the excerpt from the books and see which character ate that meal and when and uh, it just sort of strengthens that connection to the books. I'm going to play a, a little clip from the HBO series, and this is just a short one, with one of the characters describing who he is, and you can tell me about his region and what you mm -hmm. have in the book that matches where he came from. Sure. So here we go. I, Eddard, the House Stark, Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North, sentence you to die. All right, so there we go. Got the Stark sending some sentencing somebody to die, Lord of Winterfell. Tell me about his cuisine. Sure. <laughs> uh, I think that the Starks and the cuisine of the North, uh, including the Wall sometimes, uh, is some of the best in the books. Uh, it's better suited to winter, obviously. Winter is coming. Uh, <laughs> but that's only because it's a lot of meat pies, roasts, things like that. Um, but they do have a fair number of desserts as well and some quirky, tasty salads. Um, but among the, uh, and you can help me remember here, we've got like pork pies, beef and bacon pies, um, turnips swimming in butter. Um, this picture of breakfast looks pretty good to me. Yes, Two eggs, six of strips favorites. of bacon. I, you know, okay, sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, all right, so people need to know, since you're testing these recipes, and we've said it's medieval cuisine, that, you know, sometimes you have a pig head in your apartment. <laughs> that did happen. Yes, yes, it did. <laughs> I think you should mention. <laughs> uh, yeah, we are local stabinors butcher provided us with a pig's head and I went to town on it and made some nice head cheese. Wow. <laughs> How, obviously you've expanded your palate since since doing this cookbook, right? Oh, absolutely. Vastly. Yeah, right? Okay, so what, what would you have eaten before and now you don't think anything about? Probably a pig's head. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, we have a rule that uh, one of us, if not both of us, has to try everything that we put on the blog. Um, and so, you know, we don't just make it and say, you know, we made it, hands off, good luck. Uh, we say, we tried it, it was a little weird, this is what it's like, uh, you know, if you'd like to try it, here's the recipe. Um, crickets, I think, never would have occurred to me before, but we definitely did that. Um, they weren't bad. They weren't bad. Well, some of those uh, uh, people on Survivor have eaten a few crickets, so, you it's know, true. you're in good company there. Um, I, I really think of you two, and, and let me just say you're Chelsea Monroe Castle and Sarianne Lehrer, and the authors of the new cookbook, A Feast of Ice and Fire, the official Game of Thrones companion cookbook. I think of you as sort of the medieval Judy, Julie Powell. <laughs> How do you feel about that? <laughs> uh, it's terrific. It's, uh, it's sort of a similar story arc, I think, but uh, unexpectedly, you know, because it's right. blog to cookbook to quirky niche fame. I don't know. It's, uh... <laughs> there you go. So um, I've mentioned that this is the official cookbook with George R.R. R. Martin's forward in here. There is floating about out there, don't be confused people, an unofficial book without his approval. Tell me how you got to him and therefore ended up writing this cookbook. We actually emailed George Martin um, 
And just to let him know that we had started this blog, I think we did last May, sent him an email. And uh, he was very gracious. I uh, wrote us back and praised the work we had done so far. At that point, we just had maybe a few months into the blog, but we uh, had been really going great guns at cooking as much as we could fit into our schedules. Um, and uh, he cautioned us away from some of the weirder things like seagull. But, oh, good. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, if we could get it, we'd cook it. Some people in different places, you know, of the world um, say, well, why, why haven't you cooked this? You know, we have this every Saturday. And we say, well, we can't get that here. I'm sorry, but you can do a guest post. Um, and George Martin actually brought us to the attention of his publishers. Um, and so we owe him a great debt of gratitude to not for not only writing the books and giving us such great descriptions of food, but also for snagging us a cookbook deal. Yeah, fabulous opportunity. Cool. So what's been the most fun? It's tough to narrow it down. The whole thing has just been mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can't ask, like, we live with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, we have five roommates in the house, and we it's been amazing. I mean, for the whole house, it's been amazing. Meeting George was incredible. Yeah. All right. Uh, the most odd thing that's happened while you've been preparing these interesting recipes. We got a marriage proposal. That's oh! True. That was really early on, too. That was, that was early on. Yeah. From one of the uh, fictional lords in the Seven Dynasties or oh, a real person? <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> well, will you at some point get a chance to meet the cast? I love Peter Dinklage. You know, come on. That's yeah. my fave. We're hoping to. We'll be at Comic-Con in San Diego in July, and we're hoping that we'll be able to meet some important people out there. All right. Well, is there going to be a book, too? A Feast and Fire of Ice and Fire 2? You know, we would definitely write it if there uh, there's interest enough. If this one does well, we'd probably have to wait for George to write another book because we uh, probably only have enough recipes for half of another book. But uh, we'd love to explore other fictional cookbooks, all kinds of things, you know. Uh, the sky's the limit at this point, I think. Um, I hear that the other fictional cookbook you want to explore is Harry Potter. <laughs> that would be awesome. It's, I think it's really surprising that there isn't an official Harry Potter cookbook because food is so integral to that as well. I mean, who hasn't wanted butterbeer who's read the books? I want butterbeer right now. I know. Well, some, I think somebody has yeah. come up with some recipe for one of the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, Universal, I don't know which one, is Universal Studios or Disney has mm-hmm. the... Uh, official Harry Potter land and they come up with a butterbeer recipe which they will not share with anybody but the rest of the foods like the invisible beans and stuff it's all open to you (laughs) Okay, that that one might give us a little trouble okay well I think it's fabulous I love it that you're from here and that you were uh, innovative enough to come up with this the book is fabulous looking and a lot of information in it so congratulations to you thanks so much thank you very much All right, I've been speaking with Chelsea Monroe Castle and Sarah Ann Lehrer they are the authors of the new cookbook a Feast of Ice and Fire, the official Game of Thrones companion cookbook. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. You just heard our original 2012 conversation with author Chelsea Monroe Castle. She joined me last summer, 10 years later, to dish on her career as a pop culture cookbook author and the pop culture cookbook genre that continues to evolve. Chelsea is co-author of the New York Times best-selling A Feast of Ice and Fire, the official Game of Thrones cookbook. She also wrote The World of Warcraft, the official cookbook, 
and Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, the official Blackspire Outpost cookbook. Since our conversation, her latest, the Star Trek cookbook, was published to fan enthusiasm. Welcome back, Chelsea. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here again. It's so exciting to have you. I've just loved our original interview. And, you know, we got to talk about what is just so amazing at the end of that conversation. You said, maybe we write another book. Maybe it's something we do. And here you have a full on career uh, doing just that. It's true. It uh, it was really fun hearing that interview again and really seeing how far we've come and uh, you know I, how many of those little boxes I've been lucky enough to tick uh, throughout the last 10 years, which was a whirlwind adventure. So it's pretty terrific. Um, before we get into how you got from the blog to the book to now a career, uh, doing this, I want to mention that Sarah Ann Lehrer, that she too ended up in the food industry. She runs a restaurant in Richmond, Virginia with her husband called The Broken Tulip, and she's a chef. She she left the U.S. and uh, trained in England and became a full-on chef. So the two of you have just from your interest in a fun show where you were fans of have created whole careers for yourselves. Absolutely. No. And it, for anybody who's in the Virginia area, please absolutely go to their restaurant. You will not be disappointed. The food is fabulous. Uh, I wish that I could get down there a little more often than we do, but it's been a weird couple of two years recently. So, Oh yes, that is true. (laughs) And by the way, there are many on, on the website who agree with you customers. So that's, that's good for Sarah and Lara. Yes. (laughs) All right. Now back to you. So what happened? The book comes out. And by the way, we should say that the official Game of Thrones companion cookbook sold more than 100,000 copies. That's not a small number. It's a huge number, in fact, um, for a cookbook. And so after that, then people reached out to you. You reached out to how what happened afterwards? Sure. Well, I think nobody really anticipated that wild a success from the Game of Thrones cookbook, uh, including the publishers. You know, it was sort of, I think, a little bit of favor to George that they took on the project. But fans loved it, you know? And not only Game of Thrones fans, but also people interested in historical cookery because of the historical recipe angle. People who liked the show but had never read the books also. I mean, it's just uh, a sort of oddball mix of people who engaged with the cookbook and made it so popular. And I think that really opened the door for a lot of other similar cookbooks and for other publishers to sort of take a look at this and think, well, maybe there's something to this. Maybe we should uh, take a look at, you know, what we've got in our intellectual property arsenal and see what we could do. Hmm. And specifically for you, what was your next project in this genre, working in this field um, after A Feast of Ice and Fire? So I did a lot of other fictional food blog posts um, for my part, just sort of playing with what I knew how to do from working on the Game of Thrones project. And um, I think about two years later, got an email about doing a World of Warcraft cookbook for another publisher. And as luck would have it, I already had a fully fleshed out sort of brainstorming document uh, on my computer of 
what I thought would be good for a World of Warcraft cookbook because I had independently thought that would be a really top-notch project. So I was able to jump into that with two feet. And then at that point, did you think, okay, this is my career or you just, this is just something, another fun thing to do? I hoped it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was not a career that existed. So it was almost difficult in that sense to even imagine it as something that I could continue doing. Yeah. As in, I said, I think in the original interview, there are lots of other books and novels, TV shows, movies, that kind of thing that I really wanted to explore. Um, but I, I didn't think that I would necessarily get to, you know, I, I thought, well, I've got a second one here with the World of Warcraft cookbook and, and that comes with its own unique challenges and opportunities and it's really fun. But I mean, what are the odds I'll get another one after that, right? Mm. So here's the thing that we said in the first interview that is even truer today, I would imagine. Um, you can't just sort of throw these things together. It might seem from the outset, okay, well, if I'm a fan and I'll throw some recipes in and I'll call it whatever related to the particular series and that'll be it. You have to really do a lot of research, pay attention to the environment that the characters live in um, and draw clues from there. You're kind of an anthropologist as well. All of these skills have to uh, play into your creating recipes for a fictional world. Absolutely. I uh, I sometimes call it uh, myself a fictional locavore, right? Because it, <laughs> I have to, exactly as you said, you know, look at the climate, look at the trade routes, look at how food really works within a setting and how it looks if, you know, there's that kind of input. Video game food has a lot more image uh, images available so I can really match what I make with how fans expect it to look. Something like Game of Thrones, there was no visual. So we had to come up with that on our end. And so each project has really been very different from one to the next. And each has its own challenges and each has its own really fun opportunities. And I learn something new every time. Well, one of the things that you, uh, those of you who work in this field, and it is a field now, pop culture cookbooks, begin it's really going back through the series to find any references to the foods of the series. And as we mentioned, your uh, Star Trek cookbook will be out in September. So let's take a listen to a couple of uh, clips from Star Trek episodes. And so people can hear some of the food references that may have played a part in how you shape the recipes. First, here's Riker describing the Klingon delicacies on his plate in Star Trek The Next Generation, Season 2, Episode 8. What is that? It's a Klingon delicacy. Hippias claw. This is heart of targ. This, of course, is gog. Gog? Yes, serpent worms. Would you like some? No, thanks. (laughs) I don't think I'd want some either. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But it's very specific. Um, here's another clip. This is from Star Trek Enterprise, Season 2, Episode 4, featuring the food replicator. I saw a similar device on a Tarkalian vessel. It was capable of replicating almost any inanimate object. I wonder what else is on the menu. One pan-fried catfish. It smells like the real thing. 
Not bad. I doubt there's a catfish within 130 light years. Its genome is stored in Enterprise's computer, as is the recipe. Captain, you gotta try this. Thanks, but I'll stick with whatever chef's serving. <laughs> All right, Chelsea Monroe Castle. So you would look at those scenes, and then what? What would start sparking ideas for you for recipes? Oh, I'm absolutely intolerable to watch TV shows and movies <laughs> with at this point because I, I jump up and down and I point at the screen and I'm like, did you see that? I can't believe they told us what spices were in that soup. I have to go make it. Uh, I drive everyone crazy in my family. Um, but I I remember both of those scenes very well because uh, I am an avid Star Trek fan um, in addition to being sort of general well-rounded nerd um <laughs> and so with star trek i i made a list of what i figured would be all the dishes that people would expect to see you know the things that people think of when they think of food from star trek so you do have the klingon gah the serpent worms and you've got the plomeek soup for the vulcans and it's interesting you played the clip with the replicator because some people will say, well, why do you even, how do you justify having a, a cookbook for Star Trek? Because it's a world where you just push a button and your food appears. Um, and I would say the answer to that is is twofold. One, we do not currently live in a world with food replicators, for better or worse. Uh, and even within the world of Star Trek, people still cook. You know, it's it's a post-scarcity world, so that's cool. Uh, but even Riker still cooks things in his quarters and has friends over. Um, you know, Captain Pike in the new Strange New World series cooks things and serves them to his dinner guests. And so it, no matter how far I think humanity moves on from where we are now, even fictionally, I think food will always be something that brings people together and is a reason to gather. And so I think sort of honoring that through a cookbook was really fun. Well, I'll underscore that by saying I do a lot of uh, conversations about cookbooks on my show. And the ones that sell are the ones that have stories about um, the authors of the book or or where the foods or the recipes come from. So if you're doing a cookbook, which, you know, on its face has plenty of stories to tell, that's interesting to people, even if they had no interest in your case um, of the series, because people are interested in stories and, uh, and uh, interesting recipes. That's what's driving cookbook sales now in general. So this would seem to fit right into it. Now, listen, you're not a trained chef, but a uh, real food enthusiast. And all of your books have been the official cookbooks, but there's a lot of unofficial cookbooks out there. What's the difference? Um, what, are you, what are you able to bring as the author of the official cookbooks that the unofficial ones cannot? Well, I think it's weirdly hit and miss, and it's not quite as clean cut as the official versus the unofficial. There are some unofficial cookbooks that are absolutely top notch. You know, there are a few for Harry Potter, going again back to the uh, original interview, that I think are really good. And they've got great British cuisine and um, huge fan following and have been very popular for that world. And so I think that what the difference really between 
what I think of as a good fictional food cookbook and one that's just sort of thrown together is for me, at least, I like them to be immersive. I like them to be drawn directly from the world and really considered in depth as to what the characters are eating and what the spice profiles are, where the ingredients are coming from. Which is not to say that I don't also love something like, you know, the Aliens cookbook. <laughs> it's very different because I don't think anybody really wants to eat the shipboard food that you might find on uh, those particular voyages. But it's it's something that it's almost intangible in many ways. I think it's a good book good cookbook in this genre, I think, is something that speaks to fans. It's not just sort of a, a quick grab for whatever's trendy at the moment. Um, it, I think it has to have staying power. It can't mm. just sort of be a, a flash in the pan. Well, it looks like you have staying power, <laughs> Chelsea Monroe Castle, uh, in the cookbook world and certainly in the world of pop culture cookbooks. Um, I'm just delighted to catch up with you after 10 years and see what you're doing and um, delighted about your great success. And maybe we'll meet here 10 years from now. Fingers <laughs> crossed. There, uh, I still got a few more projects I'd like to uh, cross off the list. So we'll be in touch. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks again. Take care. Chelsea Monroe Castle is co-author of the New York Times bestselling A Feast of Ice and Fire, the official Game of Thrones companion cookbook, and World of Warcraft, the official cookbook, plus Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, the official Black Spire Outpost cookbook. Her latest, the Star Trek cookbook, was published last September. That's it for this encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, part of last summer's fun series. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Kelly Wessinger and Hannah Ubeli, and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our interns are Catherine Hurley and Eli Chavez. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.